All right, we'll get started. There are some handouts floating around. That helps. Let me go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into numbers. Father, we thank you for this day, and thank you for uh, taking care of us, even throughout the past week. Thank you for a new um, week. We thank you for a time to celebrate and remember the resurrection of our Savior. We pray that you would help us uh, as we do that, to do it with um, hearts that are engaged in uh, celebrating Christ, in thanking Him, in um, casting cares and burdens on you, and in uh, hearing from your word and singing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Numbers. Um, <clears throat> turn to Numbers 15. Let's do a little bit of review. So where is Israel right in the book of Numbers at this point? Does anyone remember? <clears throat> yeah, they were at Sinai. Um, I think last week or two, you guys, they, they moved, right? They thought they should try to invade Canaan on their own. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so they moved, uh, so, they're, so they're in Sinai, then they move into kind of more wildernessy area, moving towards the promised land, right? Um, Canaan, the promised land. And they get there, and what happens? They send spies. They send spies in, and, and what do the spies come back and say? Giants. There are giants in the land, right? Uh, a bunch of a bunch of uh, good reasons, right? Quote unquote, good reasons, not to go into the land that the Lord had promised them, and uh, so then what happens? The Lord tells them they're not allowed to go into the land. That's right. Yeah, this generation is not going to enter the land, right? This unfaithful generation, uh, they are not believing God's promises. They're not going to enter the land. Their children will enter the land. Um, which is ironic, right? Because they were not ironic, but ironic because their, their children, uh, they, part of their complaint was, uh, did you bring us out here so our children would just get eaten up and die basically, right? And so the Lord says, no, you guys are not going to enter, but your children who you're so worried about, they will enter, right? To show that he is faithful. He's able to do what he promised. Um, so <clears throat> they rebel. This faithless generation will not enter the land. Look at the end of chapter 14. This will set the scene for where we're going to go today. Uh, chapter 14, verses 42 through 45. <clears throat> so they, they um, just to, to remind you, so they, uh, I think you had just said this a second ago, Dave, they, uh, not, they, they didn't want to go in. God says, fine, you're not going to go in. Then they say, we want to go in. We're going to go in. And Moses says, no, that's not a good idea. Don't go in, right? And this is what we read. Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you. Now that is pretty important, isn't it? Because the whole narrative has been the desire to have the Lord among them, with them, right? In the center of their camp, right? That's the whole thing with the tabernacle and with the sacrifices and all these things. They want God's blessing presence among them. But here we're, they were told, don't go up because the Lord is not among you when you go up, if you're going to do this. Uh, lest you be struck down before your enemies. Now verse 43, for, for there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. So he's really emphasizing that the Lord is not gonna be with them because they've turned their back on him. They've been faithless. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Horma. Uh, that word Horma means destruction as well. So we, in other words, things are not going well, 
<clears throat> right? They, they, they disregard the warnings. They go up without the Lord's blessing presence. They are defeated. They face destruction. Um, so things are not looking good. How should they deal with this failure? Is there any hope? And what we come to in chapter 15 is reason for hope. We also come to warnings to avoid disobeying and distrusting the Lord. So what we're going to see is we're going to see there's hope for sinners who trust the Lord. That's really good news. They're sinful. They have failed, right? You're kind of like, is there any hope? I mean, they just got chased out of the land. They just faced destruction. Now what? So the answer is yes, for sinners who repent, there is hope. Uh, There's also a warning, though, for those who continue in high-handed sin, and we're going to talk about what that is, but it's essentially a disregard for God's word. In other words, it's saying, God, I I, I read this, I hear what you're saying, but I don't care right? And so there's warnings that if you, if you go that direction, destruction will come. And so that's what we're going to see in this section, hope for sinners and warnings for those who might be tempted to engage in ongoing high-handed sin. So let's look at the hope for sinners in chapter 15. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 1 through 2. I want you to listen for some hopeful things here and um, tell me what you, what you hear. So verses 1 through 2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. Okay, um, let's stop there. Is there any hope in, that, in those two verses? The Lord is still going to give them the land, right? I mean, he says, and he says it as a promise. When you come into the land, now he is speaking really to the future generation, but the point, the, that young generation, they're still there. But the point is, he's going to give them the land, right? This isn't, gone. Um, That's right. If you back up even one more step, the Lord is still speaking to them, right? That's grace and mercy, isn't it? That he'll still speak to them. Um, So he, he, and he's going to, now what we're going to see is he's going to go on and give them instructions about when they come into the land, which again is hopeful, right? There's hope here. So look at, um, listen to to some of these wonderful things about sacrifices. Uh, Verses two through five. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, you are to inhabit which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quart of hin of oil, and you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Now skip down uh, to verse 17. I'm just wanted to get, I'm trying to give you a feel for what's going on, not read every verse here. Verse 17, then the, the, sorry, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I am bringing you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Okay, so I'm saying this is communicating hope. <clears throat> you might be reading that and thinking this is kind of boring. We've already talked about sacrifices. Why are we talking about sacrifices again? But think about what the situation. Remember what just happened, right? They rebelled. The Lord was not with the, the rebels when they went up to try to take the land, even though the Lord had said through Moses, don't do it. The Lord is not going to go with you. Now he's telling them, you're going to make sacrifices. Again, this is good news. In other words, the covenant is not off here right? You can still draw near to the Lord through sacrifices. 
And a lot of these sacrifices that are being described are ones that are really mainly going to happen in a significant way. In other words, not just here and there, but very significant way in the land. When they can settle down, grow crops, raise a lot of livestock, right? And, and celebrate the feasts the way they're going to celebrate them when they're in the land. So the point is there's still hope. That, that's what's going on here, right? You have, you have rebelled. You've been judged. This generation is not going to enter, but there's good news. The next generation is going to enter. They will make sacrifices. The land, here's another blessing, the land will be fruitful, just like God promised. It's going to produce all these things that they're going to use for sacrifices. So when we read this, I think we're tempted to think, well, it's just another boring passage on sacrifices. We've already read about this. The placement of this makes, makes it, it's not just repetition. It is, I mean, it is repetition, but it's repetition with a point, right? He's making a point here that the promise is not off. There is still hope. So yes, we have hope for sinners who trust in the Lord. He confirms that by making his promises clear that uh, through direct statement and th implied through the sacrifices we just described. Um, <clears throat> one more thing to note, uh, look at verses 14 through 16. This is, um, this is related, but, but just a, another point to add. Verse 14, and if a stranger is sojourning with you or anyone is living permanently among you and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. So, this is um, still hopeful, but notice who the audience is here. I mean, it is Israel, but who's he, who's he really talking about? Non-Israelites who come and join themselves to Israel. So we're, Abrahamic promises, right? Through you, I will bless the nations. So it's not, that's not just a new covenant thing, although the new covenant is where we see that go full scale, hey, take the message to the nations, right? Right now, though, it's, hey, come to this people who God has covenanted with, see this God, worship this God in Israel, right? Um, because the Messiah hasn't come at this point in redemptive history yet. So they, they, but the, but the, the good news is there's still hope for even non-Israelites who will repent, right? There, so there is hope for Israelites and non-Israelites if they will trust in the Lord, which means they're going to do what God says. They're going to make these sacrifices the way God says. There's, there's one rule. And, and, you know, some people get all bent out of shape because they think, well, you know, why does God work through, through Israel and not other nations? Well, number one, that's God's prerogative. He can do that. He could have worked through no one. We could all go to hell, right? But he chose not to do that. Uh, and grace is grace. You can't say it's, it's not just because that's what God did. He was gracious. Um, but the point is, even sojourners would be treated the same. They're not treated differently if they come and they worship And when, when it comes to being able to draw near through sacrifice, I mean, there still are going to be some distinctions, but in terms of they, they can be forgiven. They can be right with God. Um, so the Abrahamic blessing is also being fulfilled here. So that, again, hope. That's what we're seeing in this section. In spite of their failure, there is hope. Now, these sacrifices also give hope of an ongoing uh, forgiveness that can be, be uh, had. I just mentioned forgiveness, although we haven't really seen that directly mentioned in all this talk of sacrifice. But look at verses 22 through 27. I want you to listen for repeated words. I'll begin in verse 22 of Numbers 15. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward through your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven. Because it was a mistake, and they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. And the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. If any person, sorry, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. <clears throat> All right, any repeated words? Unintentional. Unintentional, right? Unintentionally appears a couple times. Um, what else? Mistake. Mistake appears a couple times. Community. Congregation. Yeah. Congregation, yep, that's right. Yep, and so he, he, talk, he starts out by talking about when the congregation sins unintentionally. He moves into individuals sinning unintentionally, right? So, so both those things are happening. You have the group and the individual being addressed. Um, you have the idea of atonement and being forgiven are repeated a couple times. <clears throat> um, so let's talk about unintentional real quick. And uh, we're going to see in a second, we're going to compare this in chapter uh, 15, verse 30, to the opposite of it, which is high-handed sin. So when we hear unintentional, I think we're, we're tempted to think um, it was, uh, it, it, maybe even it wasn't a sin, but clearly it's a sin because they have to be forgiven, right? And they have to make sacrifice. And there's got to be atonement, right? Is this like a mission, like just forgetting, a, forgetting what so, ordinances or forgetting yeah. sacrifices? I, I do think, I think that om sins of omission would certainly fall into this category. That's right. Yep. That would probably be a large chunk of this. It still needs atonement. It still needs to be uh, forgiven. It needs to be sacrifice. Um, I think what we have here is when someone sins and they want to sin, uh, sorry, when it comes to um, not unintentional, the opposite, when it comes to high-handed, um, when someone sins and they're siding with their sin over God, that is a high-handed sin. We're going to see that in a second. So an unintentional sin is one where I think oftentimes it's sense of omission. It could also be a sin where they, they did something wrong but they, they're, not really, they're not siding with their sin over it, uh, over God. They're siding with God and they're saying, you're right, this was wrong, your promises are true, I believe them, Lord, you know, help me, please forgive me, and they move towards obedience of doing the sacrifices they're supposed to do. In other words, they still believe that God's word is ruling, that God is ruling, that he's, he's true to his word, that there is punishment if I'm not forgiven of this sin, I want to be forgiven, that uh, I don't want to lose my close connection to God, right? There's this desire to be connected to him. Um, and if, if they sin unintentionally, which I think means that they're going to make sacrifice, they're going to trust God's word for atonement, well, then what they receive is atonement. They receive forgiveness, right? You see that hope there. Uh, so there's hope for sinners who are trusting in the Lord. That's been this, the theme of chapter 15 so far. They, they make sacrifice and they are therefore atoned for. Their sin is covered. Um, but what we find in the next section, which really carries us through the rest of chapter 15 and chapter 16, is high-handed sin. Uh, we are warned against that because there is no atonement left for a high-handed sin. And that's what we're going to see coming up right here. So look at verses 30 through 36 of chapter 15. So we have hope for sinners who trust in the Lord, but now we have warnings to not rebel against the Lord. Um, and, and this means despising God's word. Look at this in verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand. So you see the contrast, but. So what are we contrasting this to? We're contrasting this to unintentional sins, those sins which the people make atonement for, right? 
and they therefore are forgiven for it. So, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or sojourner, so again, same rule applies to native Israelite and sojourner. This is what he does if he does it with a high hand. He reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. So in other words, he will not benefit from the covenant blessings, the forgiveness that comes. Sometimes he'll be executed if it's, if it's something that's obvious and it's high-handed and it's, it's caught and the person says, you know what, I don't care, right? They're like, God, you take a hike. I don't really care about this. They can be executed for that. We're going to see that in a second. Verse 31, because he has despised the word of the Lord and he has broken, has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So you notice the contrast. The iniquity is not on the sacrificial lamb in his place or goat or whatever. It's on him. The iniquity is on him. Why? Because he doesn't care about making atonement. He doesn't care about the sacrifices. It's high-handed. He reviles the Lord. He disregards what God commands uh, by, first of all, disobeying, but then second, doing, disobeying God's command to make sacrifice. You see, you see the point here. The point is, this high-handed sin says, number one, I'm going to sin because I really don't think God is there. I don't think he's going to judge me. And I'm not going to make sacrifice because I don't need to be atoned for. I think that's, that's what's happening here. So that's the contrast. Uh, this is uh, some form of deliberate apostasy. Um, the New Testament warns against this too. The book, the book of Hebrews says we, uh, that we ought, not, we ought to be very careful that we do not trample the Son of God underfoot um, because if you do that, there is no hope of atonement. I, I don't think the point is, you know, some people say like blasphemy. You know, if you say, if you say something blasphemous against the Spirit, then there's no forgiveness or whatever. But, you know, but they cite uh, Mark, and uh, I think one of the other gospel writers mentions that too. I don't think that's what's going on in those passages. Uh, but I, I think the point is what you're saying is, uh, I know who the Son of God is, I know who Jesus is, and I don't care. I, I will not turn to him. I will not receive his forgiveness. Um, this is a trampling the Son of God underfoot. Um, <clears throat> now the next verses show us um, an example of someone who commits a high-handed sin. So look at verses 32 through 36. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so this is a high-handed sin. Now, uh, in our modern age, right, we think, oh, well, I mean, the guy picked up sticks. Really, this seems a little severe. Um, but remember what's going on. God has led them out of slavery, right? He has said, I am your God. He's given them the law. And one of the main features of the law that, that showed that there's this covenant agreement is the people on the Sabbath day would set that day aside to show that they, in fact, are trusting in the Lord. Think about how foolish that is if the Lord is not real. But if he is, you're showing, yes, we believe he's real. We're walking in covenant with him, and we're going to show that by honoring this Sabbath day. Okay, when, when this guy's out gathering, gathering sticks on the Sabbath, is this a public thing? Yes, everybody in the congregation sees what's going on. So this is not just a guy who's like, oops, sorry, my bad, I didn't realize we weren't supposed to do this, right? He, so he, he knows what he's doing, and he's publicly flaunting it and saying, God can take a hike, I don't care, right? Don't tell me that God's in the tent or it matters if we make these sacrifices or if it matters if we do the Sabbath. I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. So we have high-handed, open rebellion against God 
who's given them this law. Now, they, they are also a nation which makes this the fact that it's going to be a capital crime. That's something different that, from the new covenant, right? The new covenant, we have excommunication, right? We do not physically execute people, but excommunication is still a big deal because we're saying, look, we don't think you're part of the kingdom of God. That ought to at least make you stop and think. If, if these people who love you and they love God's word are telling you, we don't see how you represent Jesus because you're siding with your sin over Jesus. You're basically telling Jesus to take a hike, right? I mean, think about how, how that could be done in, in issues of sexual immorality, of greed and covetousness, right? You could, it's just this me, 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 forget Jesus. Um, and, and so that's, uh, that's a pretty big deal. So they, they, um, they do stone this man uh, because he is walking in high-handed sin. Um, so this is, this is pretty significant. Um, Hebrews 3.12 warns us, so even though we are in a different covenant and things are, um, there are, there is a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, that's true. But we still have warnings like Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So there is a warning here that I do believe proves effectual for those that are truly in Christ. If you're truly a Christian and you hear that warning, I think God, that's a means God uses to cause you to take care and not harden your heart. I think that's true. Um, but, it is, but it is a genuine warning. There can be people that can be even visibly part of the church, right? Who are going to end up walking in a high-handed sin, trampling the Son of God underfoot and showing that they truly were not part of the covenant, right? Um, so I think, I think this is, we, even though we're not in the exact same setting, we still have a warning to us, right? And again, I do think this proves effectual. If you're a Christian and you hear that, and you're walking in high-handed sin right now, some sort of sin, I think the Lord will use that to cause you to repent at some point. Um, I think that's why we have warnings in Hebrews. Uh, they, they are genuine, real warnings that we ought to heed. Okay, so what we've seen so far then is, okay, if, if sin is there, what's going to happen? They, they just won't try to take the land. God basically judges them by not going with them. Is it all over? And then the first part of chapter 15 says, no, there's hope for sinners who repent. There's hope for those who are believing the Lord's promises, trusting him, doing the sacrifices because they trust him, receiving the atonement and forgiveness he gives. But now we've moved into the section where, but there's also a warning for rebels. Don't think just because you're physically connected to this camp that you can just do whatever you want and disregard the Lord and walk in high-handed sin. There is judgment for those who go down that path. There's going to be more judgment coming up here uh, in a minute in chapter 16. But before we do that, notice he gives a warning that is um, not, not um, it's something that they take with them basically everywhere they go. And so uh, just follow along. It'll make sense when I read it. Verse 37 through 40. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you. Here's why. To look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. Why? To do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which, are inclined to whore, which, uh, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. So again, he's going back to covenant reminders, right? So again, there's hope. Look, if the Lord brought you out, you belong to him. Live like it. 
But there's also a warning, isn't there? These tassels serve as a reminder, hey, you belong to the Lord. There's hope there, but there's also a warning. Therefore, be holy. When you see that, you're reminded, this is, this is God. This isn't just my, my best friend, right? Um, when if you have a good best friend, I mean, that should be a warning away from ungodliness too, really, right? Um, but, but here you have God giving you a warning uh, and a reminder. So it's kind of both. It's kind of, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like this thing where, where you see it and you're reminded positively, I belong to the Lord. And part of the reason this is, this, this blue tassel kind of reminds them of things that they would have seen in the tabernacle, some of the blue fabric that was used there, things like that. So I think there's reminders that the Lord is among us and we're his people. We need to live holy. And in light of what we just read earlier, if we don't, judgment's going to come, right? Because he, he takes his holiness seriously. Remember, to be holy means to be set apart. So again, this is a reminder, you're set apart. You're not like the other nations. Oh, and it's, it's not just the other nations that are your problem. What's the other problem? The thing he focuses in on here. Yourself. It's inside of you, right? Your own heart and your own eyes. I mean, you can think of this is throughout the scripture, isn't it? Over and over again, right? You, uh, Adam and Eve, you see them seeing and wanting and going after it. You see in the New Testament, uh, lust of the flesh and the eyes, pride of life and all. I mean, same thing. The human condition is not changed. Um, which, I mean, again, so, so that's good news. I mean, the good news that God has been unfolding over centuries doesn't need to change either because the human condition hasn't changed. That The issue is always the same. Um, <clears throat> so this is one reason why, I mean, everybody thinks we're going to solve problems through politics, better healthcare, better education. I'm not opposed to any of those things being better. All those things, great, let's make them all better. But those aren't ultimately the issue. The issue in all of life is the human heart. We go at, we whore after other gods, God has made us to love him, right? That's why you have this picture of marriage and the church, right? God has made us to love him exclusively and to be loved by him and to know what it is to walk with him. And yet we, like a prostitute, right? Or like someone wanting a prostitute, we're always going looking for something else in our hearts. Uh, the heart is the inner person. It's the wanter. It's the will. It's the seat of affection and love. And so we need to have our hearts fixed on the Lord. And even as Christians, we need to be reminded that we are to be wholly set apart to the Lord um, and have our eyes fixed on him rather than our own lusts. Uh, we need to have some sort of reminder to us regularly uh, to, to make our mindset one of, look, I was bought with a price. I belong to the Lord. Uh, I mean, that's, that's even the warning he gives in 1 Corinthians, right? When he tells them this whole thing about, hey, you know, prostitution and all these other sexual immorality things. What, what you need to remember that you were bought with a price. Your body is not even your own. Body and soul, you belong to the Lord. And, um, and so we need to daily die to self-oriented living and follow Christ. We need to regularly think about who we are. So I'm not suggesting that we have to put tassels on or all these other things. Um, I guess you can if you want. That's not, I mean, there's nothing inherently sinful about that if it helps you remember. But, um, somehow we have to set our mind on this. And, you know, listen, we live in a, in a culture, in a country where we have the word of God. We got it in our language. You've got it in your pocket. You know what? That might be a good reminder. Just look at that every day and read it, right? Um, so we need to be reminded that we belong to the Lord and daily dying to self. And the way we're going to remember that ultimately is through his word, um, memorizing his word. I think that's, that's something else we do, right? We take his word with us everywhere we go. So we are to be a people set apart to the Lord. Uh, the next section continues the warning. So, so in one sense, that tassel thing is, is a warning, but it's also kind of just a positive reminder. So there's, there's kind of hope and warning in there. But now we're going to go straight into a dire warning because we're going to have a rebellious uh, Levite. 
And things, uh, just spoiler alert, things are not going to go well for him and his uh, little posse. Um, so anyway, sorry if I ruined that for you, but that way you're not, you're not wondering, right? I mean, it's not, it's not going to go well for him. Uh, but it's going to be a warning, okay? Yes? I'm just curious. Um, I, I feel like I really haven't thought about this as much as I thought. But um, so like of the Ten Commandments, it's like as uh, part of the New Covenant, we don't necessarily like observe all of the you know, right. disciplines of those things. Yeah. Like what would be like the modern day, um, like as a part of the New Covenant, how would we like observe the Sabbath in a way that's like New Testament? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, so how we observe the Sabbath. Okay. So um so I do think so I don't think we're under the old covenant. I think the old covenant has been completely fulfilled, right? So so technically the answer is we're not under any of the 10 commandments, but obviously the law of love, the law of Christ and God's moral standards have not changed, right? So thou shalt not murder, all that stuff is still true. Um, when it comes to the Sabbath, you know, I mean Paul says explicitly in Colossians that some, you know, it's it's not this day or that day type thing. And even mentions Sabbath by name there that we're not we're not under the Sabbath keeping thing anymore. Um, so I guess the short answer is we're not under the Sabbath, um, but does that just mean then um, I should you know do whatever I want? Well, no. We're, I mean Hebrews ten tells us don't forsake assembling, and God's people assemble on Sunday, which by the way is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. So even there, if people want to say they want to keep the Sabbath, if if you want to keep the Sabbath, you really need to be doing it on Saturday, right? Um, but um, but it's fine. I mean, and I, and I recognize Christians, they, they, they'll regard, they'll say because of the resurrection that Sunday's the Sabbath. That's fine, but we need to be careful not to impose that on other people because again, Paul's really clear. If you think keeping the days, Sabbaths and new moons, and he, I mean, again, this is Sabbath, you can't hold other Christians to that as a form of spirituality. Are, are you walking with the Lord or not? Um, but is it still good and right to set aside a day where we worship the Lord? Well, obviously we need to gather on, on when, when the church gathers, we gather on Sunday, so that's, we need to make that a priority. Um, and I do think it's wise to take some form of, of something different about that day, because it is the Lord's day. It's the day the Lord rose from the grave. Um, now, I mean, we have, uh, not everybody's able to, to do it in the same way, right? Which is one reason why I think, you know, when the gospel goes to the nations, in other words, Jesus comes, and now it's no longer just this one nation. It's the people of God are in all nations. They're going to be in all nations. And it's kind of like what you have more is the church, which is like an embassy of heaven, and it sets up in various nations. It's no longer just one nation. So I think um, in the wisdom of God, we don't have this Sabbath requirement because how would Christians follow that in certain cultures and countries where they really would not have the option? They can't just be like, listen, I'm, go I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm, I'm going to all Sunday. I'm not going to do anything except for rest. I'm not going to kindle a fire. I'm not going to do all this other stuff. There are so many different things, but the Lord in his wisdom has designed it to where we're not under that old covenant when the, when the gospel goes to the nations. Something is new about the new covenant. Um, but again, I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's not wise to, to do that. I think if you can, do it. Um, and I think most of us in our cultural setting can um, come up with some way to make Sunday a sp special, obviously by attending worship, but other things could be different. So anyway, other thoughts, questions? It was a good question. I think definitely set Israel apart. All That's right. Sabbath law, Sabbath ritual. Yeah. It was something that definitely set them apart, but you really don't see it repeated in the New Testament at all. That's right. Yep. So why do you think Jesus went against the Sabbath in his ministry before the New Covenant? Or yeah. So I don't. I don't think I would say that Jesus violated the Sabbath. I think, um, like, so. So in other words, the Sabbath doesn't command you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. 
right? I mean, it even made allowance for like if your ox falls or something, you know, but, but you weren't to go around um, doing things you should have done on other days or whatever, right? So um, I think Jesus intentionally, I think he doesn't violate the Sabbath, but I think he intentionally heals on the Sabbath to show them, look, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're talking about wanting to do the, the work of the Lord and, and you guys to some degree are working because you're here teaching the Bible and stuff like that. Uh, and you're telling me it's wrong to heal somebody on the Sabbath, right? Um, so yeah, I don't think he violates it. That's a good question though. Yeah. I think uh, Jesus used the example of uh, David where That's right. he took uh, the, yep. the uh, uh, forbidden the bread, bread from yep. the, the uh, table of the showbread and ate it, but still wasn't struck down. That's right. You know, and, and he said, like, uh, if you'd known I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then right. you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. That's right. Yeah, I guess I guess that was like the, the example that he went to, like some, something good right. to be done on the Sabbath day is not a violation of right. the of the law that's right the sabbath and also is okay to do even now that's right yep yep that's good yeah yeah and you see that when he's having his lips and sermon mouth you've heard it said you you're not supposed to burn you're not supposed to lust you're not supposed right to, but i tell you yeah and he's not changing that's what right. The law says he's basically bringing it back to what it was intended. To be. That's right. Yeah. That's right. One of the Sabbaths that they had laid so much stuff on. There. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So even with the Sabbath, they had added all these extra things. Right. They're gonna be like, but it, but really it was just outward man-made religion. Which again, in Colossians, Paul condemns that type of religion, even even in the New Covenant. Once we move into the New Covenant, he's saying, look. So it was the same thing in the old. Just because they did all these external things, you could still do it in a way that was just merely external, superficial. Uh, and they they did that. They kept adding a bunch of extra rules because they're like, oh, we're going to be extra holy, right? And it's like, well, holiness means doing what the Lord tells you. Uh, it doesn't mean you coming up with extra rules and then trying to force everybody else to do what you want. Um, yeah, it's good. Okay, good questions, good thoughts. Let's keep moving. Uh, rebellious Levite. Oh, okay, we need to move. So there's... Um, Levites, okay, they are, they have a significant role. They're to transport the tabernacle. They are to serve in and around the tabernacle. They're part of the group that keeps the unclean and the profane away from the tabernacle so that Israel isn't struck down. Uh, they serve the, the priests. And you'll remember the priests are one segment out of the Levites, right? Aaron's line in the Levites are the priests. But not every Levite is a priest. Only that one particular line. Now, the rest of the Levites still have an important job. They are still set apart in a unique way for unique things in the tabernacle. Okay? So remember all that. Now we have this guy named Korah. Look at um, number 16, 1 through 3. Now, Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, so he's a Levite, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and, uh, and On, the son of Peleth, Sons of Reuben. So these other guys are sons of Reuben. They're going to come back in a minute. I want to focus on Korah right now. We're going to come back to Dathan and Abiram. Uh, on doesn't really show up again. I'm not. He shows up here at the beginning, but we don't see him later. So I don't. I don't know what happens to him. Um, <clears throat> so they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses. So we already have like red flashing lights, right? Uh, and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So Korah's charge here is, uh, look, why are you guys exalting yourselves? Now notice, um, this is how heresy often works. Notice what happens. There is some truth in what Korah says, 
The congregation is to be set apart and holy to the Lord. But what he does is he takes that and he says, therefore, everyone is equally set apart and can equally do all these different things. There shouldn't be a special group of priests. Or at least, he may not, actually, I don't think he's going quite that far. I think, what he's, I think he's using this to then get what he wants, which is, well, I should be able to be like the priest too. Not necessarily everyone in Israel, but I should be, right? That's typically how heresy works too, right? It's usually to kind of get your own way. Um, okay, so, so heresy works this way. Um, you, you highlight one small truth, but then you twist it, um, or you, you highlight it to the exclusion of other realities that are in the Bible, and you end up making an argument, which usually ends up being for your benefit. It's something you want to be true. Um, there's an egalitarian impulse here, right? A kind of like, hey, look, we're all the same, and there's no distinction. Um, but that's, that's not true. Who, who had given the Levites their role? Do they just decide, like, hey, we're better than you guys, so we're going to take this role? No. The Lord told them, this is your job, right? Um, so, so God creates this authority and hierarchy, and uh, Korah does not like it. Uh, so what are they going to do? Look at verses 4 through 7. This is what Moses says. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show, show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. So here's Moses' solution. Take censers, Korah, and all his company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Okay, so he kind of turns it around and says the same thing back to them. But um, does this, uh, what Moses suggests, does anyone think this could be a dangerous undertaking for Korah? Yeah. Okay, why do you think this is going to be dangerous? Huh? Said to separate themselves from the Korah and his company. Yes, that's right. Yep. What else? There's also a strange fire. There's ah, like so we oh, just... Something that isn't... So in, Levi, in Leviticus... Do you guys remember two guys who offered, and they were priests, and they offered a strange form of fire, and what happened to them? They died. They died. And so Moses is like, all right, let's see what happens. God, God already commanded how he wanted this to happen. Yeah. And he already killed people that... That did, did it their own way. That's right. Yep. <clears throat> so we, we already kind of have some foreshadowing going on here. Um. Now look at uh, now Moses spells out the problem here, and he goes on and he says um, in verses eight through eleven. Uh, let's see, go down. So he basically says, "Look, you guys do have uh, you get to serve in the tabernacle and minister to the congregation." Um, and he says in verse ten, "And would you seek the priesthood also?" In other words, you're not content with what God has given you to do. Verse 11, therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? In other words, I think what he's saying is, look, you're making this out like your problem is with Aaron. Your problem is really with God. You don't like the way God structured this, and you're discontent with what God has given you to do. Now, we need to be warned by this too, because we can grumble the same way, can't we? We can grumble about our, our role in our job or in our home. Now, I'm not saying there isn't room for improvement if someone's, you know, being selfish in the way they're using their authority. You know, there might be right ways to address that. Sometimes there are ways we have to address that. But, but the point is, we ought to be content with where the Lord places us and what he gives us to do. Um, you know, people will go around thinking, well, you know, why can't women be pastors? Well, what can they do if they can't be pastors? There's a lot they can do. I mean, open your eyes. There are like a zillion ways to effectively minister to people in the kingdom of God. And in fact, the pastor's job is to equip others to do the work of the ministry. You know where the real ministry is happening? It's not the pastors, it's the people. 
So, so you misunderstood something and you're not being content with what the Lord has given you to do. Um, we could, I mean, we could go on and on with other examples. You know, um, if, you're, if you're a mom and your kids take a lot of time and energy and you could think about all the other things you want to do, well, guess what? If the Lord's given you that, minister with, with all your heart in that. Now, there may be, I'm not saying that's the only job he's given you. I mean, you may, different settings require different things. But I'm saying wherever the Lord has you, be content, right? Now, this is more significant because this is Old Covenant. This is like priesthood, how we're going to approach God type stuff. And he's saying, look, I wanted, I'm just trying to make application out of that, okay? I'm not, there's something unique going on here, but the principle still applies. Okay, so this is what's going to happen. Um, this pride of discontent gets in the way. So then we have Dathan and Abiram. I told you we were going to come back to those guys. Um, they come up and look at what they say in verse 13. Uh, it is, is it, uh, sorry, this is um, Moses is speaking to them. He calls them up and they say, listen, we're not going to come up. So they're rebelling against Moses. Verse 13, is it a small thing that you have brought us up? Uh, this is what they say, I'm sorry. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? So what land is he talking about there? Egypt. And what language is he using to describe it? Promised land. This is the voice of the serpent, is it not? The real good life is back here. It's not up here. And you're taking us over here. And we haven't seen that yet. We don't believe that's the case. We're going to live by what we see. We want to, why have you brought us up out of this great land over here? Right? So again, we have classic unbelief versus belief. Um, <clears throat> to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself prince over us. So again, Moses, you're making yourself king. Right? Again, who put Moses in that position? God did. Um, so anyway, so they go on and, God, and, and Moses um, is angry and tells God not to respect their offering. Now, real quick, um, why, why have these Reubenites allied themselves with Korah and some of these Levites? Uh, a couple things I'll point out real quick. Uh, number one, Reuben is uh, firstborn son. So probably there's a little bit of a chip on the shoulder here thinking, uh, Moses, why do you get to be prince? We ought to be prince. That's probably part of what's going on. Secondly, when you look at the, out, the layout of the camp, the Reubenites are next to where Korah would have been because the Levites are spread out around. Korah's group is right there next to the Reubenites. So another lesson for us, don't hang out with people that always affirm you in all of your complaining. Right? There's probably some truth. I mean, we don't, this is, I'm kind of reading between the lines, but I think this is an okay application, even if it's not exactly the meaning here, is... Um, you want to hang out with people that they're not always going to say, yes, you're right, every time you come up with some crazy idea or complaint. Um, you want them to be able to say, sounds like you're grumbling and complaining. You know, let's think about how the Lord has been good to you, right? Or something like that, rather than always affirming you and complaining, because it will snowball like it did for Abiram and his crew. Okay, so they want to go back to the city of man. They sound like the spies, the rebel spies, who basically said, look, we're going to die in this land. Why did you bring us here? Well, the showdown comes up here, verses 16 through 24. Uh, Moses tells them all to show up with their censers. Um, <clears throat> let everyone take his censer, verse 17, and you show up. Verse 18, every man took his censer, put fire in them, and laid the incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment." And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. What do Moses and Aaron do when God says he's going to wipe out Israel? 
they fell down. Yeah, they fall down and they intercede. They intercede for them, don't they? So again, you have an example of what true leadership looks like in the kingdom of God versus this false self-promoting version of leadership that you have happening, right? Um, And so what ends up happening in verses 25 through 35? Well, Moses uh, rose and went, uh, am I in the right spot here? rose and went um, to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him. He spoke to the congregation saying, depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And um, so they all leave. Verse 28, Moses said, uh, well, Moses basically tells him, here's how you're going to know if I'm a true prophet or not. If the, Lord's, if the Lord causes the ground to open and swallow them alive. Um, look at verse 30. He says, you sh- then you shall know these men have despised the Lord. That's the same word of the high-handed sin, despising the word of the Lord. So these guys are committing high-handed sin. As soon, verse 31, as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly and all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. So what we have happening here is um, Korah and his crew are swallowed up alive. Um, <clears throat> the word swallowed up is the same as covering the, the articles in the tabernacle, which was what their job was. Instead of doing that, they get swallowed up into the earth. They get their just desserts. The rest of these guys end up getting burned for, with fire from heaven, just like Nadab and Abihu, right? When they offered strange fire. So poetic judgment comes. Um, so this is pretty incredible. They, they, what God's judgment is pretty obvious here. Uh, then in verses 36 through 40, they do this thing where they, um, they're to make kind of a, um, a memorial out of these censors that basically says, hey, don't try this at home. Like people did this before. It didn't go well. Don't do it. Um, rebellion comes again, though, in verses 41 through 50, the next day with the rest of the congregation. Read this, but uh, verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. So again, they keep attributing stuff to Moses and Aaron, right? And it's like, that's not what's happening here. You're, You're refusing to fear the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord appeared and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and Moses and Aaron, uh, so so again, they fall on their faces. Why? They're making intercession again. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord and the plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran in the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. So what we have here is a true mediator. The people deserve death. What does Aaron do? He stands between the people and the death that they deserve and makes atonement. God is gracious here, right? He is very gracious here. And so um, how does this point to Jesus? Jesus stands between us and death, doesn't he? Right? So that first Corinthians where it says, uh, death, where is your sting? 
Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's true for those who have the true high priest who makes intercession for them. It is not true for those who follow the way of Korah, ultimately. Now, God is gracious here in Old Testament Israel, and he doesn't bring the judge. I mean, they did deserve to all die. They all committed high-handed sin. But, he's gonna, but because out of faithfulness, I think, to the, set, the generation, the children, because they're the ones who are going to the land, he, re, he, re, he accepts the, the, um, the sacrifice, the incense of Aaron. Aaron stands in the place of these sinners, right? I mean, he, he stands between, uh, not in the place, but between the wrath of God and them. And in that way, he foreshadows what Jesus is going to do. Now, Jesus is going to do it by offering himself and actually be in the place. Aaron's not in the place. Jesus is going to be in the place of sinners, and die for them. So this is um, pointing us ahead in the storyline. So that, that's one thing I would say in terms of application. Think about Christ who stands between us and the wrath that we deserve. The second thing I would say is don't reject the, the one the Lord has anointed, right? Just because you come to church doesn't mean you're not kind of rejecting him and saying, well, I just come because my family or whatever, and I do my own thing. Um, the nations in Psalm 2, we see a similar picture of this rebellion against the one God sent, and we see judgment falls on those. And so he ends that psalm by saying, we need to submit ourselves to the Lord. Kiss, kiss the son, right? Um, how does it say it? Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So I think that's ultimately where this can point us, even in, in you know, ahead in the storyline. Um, that we should be thankful for the high priest that we have. Uh, we, we ought not um, trample the Son of God underfoot by ignoring his sacrifice. We, we ought to rejoice in what he has done. Let me close this in prayer. God, we thank you so much for our Savior. We thank you for the warnings um, that we can look to Israel and be warned uh, that judgment does fall on those who walk in high-handed sin. Um, God, we thank you that we can be encouraged when we have sinned, that... Uh, when we are sorry, when we are repentant over that, when we turn to you and we believe, we're trusting in you that there is forgiveness, there is atonement because we have a high priest who has stood between us and the gates of hell, between us and your wrath and uh, has made atonement for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.